Well, it is. Uh, it's great to see you on a on a Saturday afternoon, and we are going to actually change things around just a little bit. So I, I hope that that's okay. You went off script. Um, I'll go off script and just blame the Holy Spirit. All right. Um, so what we're going to do is. Instead of looking at chapter 1, I feel like last night we probably adequately covered um, the themes that we would have looked at again in chapter 1. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to chapter 3 in our first session, and then we will do the second half of chapter 3 through chapter 4 in our middle session, and then we'll move into chapter 7 for our last session. And really, those those three uh, messages do hang together thematically. And then tomorrow, um, in in the Sunday school hour, what we will do is we'll look at uh, how to put death to shame from chapter nine. And then in the main service, we will do when the gift slips when the gifts slip away. From chapter 12. All right, so just a little uh, alteration that I think ends up uh, serving our purposes better. And uh, before I uh, read the texts, Ecclesiastes 3, I just want to ask Warren what time I'm supposed to end. Um, oh, okay. I like the ish. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to turn to a passage that um, is is quite well known. In fact, it is probably the most famous passage in the book of Ecclesiastes, of course, thanks to the birds in 1965 and Ray Stevens in 1970. This is, though, the inspired Word of God. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He's made everything beautiful in His time. He's also set eternity in their heart. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything that God does will remain forever. That there's nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which is has, all, has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Well, let's pray together. Father, how we rejoice that Your mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. 
Father, we thank You for the astounding grace and love which are in our Lord Jesus Christ. And how we thank You, Father, that we stand in Him complete. And we now plead with You that You would give us the help of Your Holy Spirit. May the same Spirit who inspired these words help us this afternoon to not only speak them rightly, but to receive them truly. We pray for Your help because we realize that apart from You, we can do nothing. And so we ask Your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Not that long ago, we were visiting family in uh, Ariel's family in Palm Springs, and uh, one of her relatives was speaking to another relative about a tragedy that had just happened in their family. And the one said to the other these words, God let this happen for a reason. He has a purpose in it. Now, what's interesting is that the relative, he's not a Bible reader, he's not even a churchgoer, but there's an innate sense that this happened for a reason. And so I ask us this afternoon, uh, where do we get that sense, that innate sense that things that happen in life happen for a reason? Actually, when we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we get an answer. And so in chapter 2, we, we arrived at Kohelet's first conclusion. And so tomorrow morning, for those of you who have asked, I will have an outline with the four corners all printed up because some of you are obsessive, compulsive, disordered, and you only had one corner and you know there's three others and you feel completely out of balance. And so I will uh, provide that. Maybe I'll email you. We could print some of those up. But at the end of chapter 2, Kohelet arrives to his conclusion, his first conclusion, that first corner piece, which was that success and wisdom and achievement and even pleasure and even wisdom cannot change the fact that life is a vapor. And in addition to that, none of those things end up providing the benefit or the advantage that Kohelet was looking for in life. And so, in a sense, uh, at the end of chapter 2, that conclusion sort of brings two things together. And that is trying to mitigate the, the, the pain of Havel, that life is a vapor, through achievement that could somehow provide me an advantage or a profit that gives me a sense of significance, all of that in and of itself was also a vapor or Havel. And so his grand conclusion was, and forget the lid for a minute, that life is a can of peaches and to the believer he gives the can opener. There's a sense in which the the idea of embracing life as a gift ends up then empowering us by God's grace, by God's Spirit, to, to enjoy that life as a gift even though it is painfully short. And so one, um, one Old Testament scholar, Barry Webb, who has some very fine material on Ecclesiastes, he says this, he says, the possibility of enjoyment returns significantly only when the quest for profit is given up altogether and replaced by the notion of gift. Opportunities to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in one's work when they come are not human achievements but divine gifts and are to be enjoyed as such. They are only palliatives to be sure, for they too are Havel, and they will slip from our grip like everything else, but that's no reason to reject them as a gift. And so we come to that end of chapter 2. Solomon really makes this beautiful, glorious conclusion to this journey that he started, and you might think, awesome. So Ecclesiastes really could have just been two chapters, not twelve. And Kohelet would have simply said, hey, hang on a second, not so fast. 
I don't want to let you off the hook right now. I want you to keep thinking with me. I want you to keep exploring with me. I want to continue to to drive these these truths home. I want to ask again the question of advantage. I want to press again the pain of Havel. And I want to look at it from all possible angles because this is too important for me just to say it once. You do know that the important things of life, you have to hear them more than once. And the important things of life, you have to hear not only more than once, but you have to hear it from different angles. You have to hear it fleshed out. You have to hear it applied. If, if you think you can learn the important things in life by hearing them only once, I can make one guarantee about you. You don't have children. <laughs> And so what Kohelet's now going to do is he's going to move into chapter 3 and there is, uh, verses 1 to 8, there is really this marvelous poem. And it is a poem on the appointed seasons and events that happen in life. And, and what, is, what is woven through this is a fundamental assumption that God is sovereign over every detail of life. So Solomon begins the poem by saying, there's an appointed time for every event under heaven. He's going to echo that again in verse 11 and in verse 17. But understand this, this is a profound statement on the sovereignty of God. It is God Himself who is the one who appoints the times, brings the events in their appointed time, because there's nothing that is outside of His control. And I hope you believe that. I hope that you believe that to to the very depth of your soul because if you don't believe that God is absolutely and comprehensively sovereign over every detail of life, then I would simply press and ask you, where is He not sovereign? And if He is not sovereign even over one molecule in your body, you are in trouble. So this poem is made up of couplets. Time for this, time for that. There's going to be 28 items, 14 couplets, multiples of 7. Alright? Now, I'm not good at math, but I can follow that. Alright? 28 items, 14 couplets, multiples of 7. Why? Because what he's after in the poem is to uh, describe for us the completeness or the totality of life. So the the, the couplets themselves are called um, merisms. That is, it's a figure of speech that um, we would say uh, a merism could be from head to toe or heaven and earth. And so you take two uh, opposite ends and it is a comprehensive statement that includes everything in between. So you have these, these 14 merisms, these 14 couplets, and you have seven twice. And so the idea is the totality of life is in view. This is a universal, comprehensive perspective on God's sovereign control over every detail of life. The other thing about the poem that needs to be asserted up front, and that is that the passage is not a prescription. There's a time for you to do this. There's a time for you to do that. That is not what the passage is about. One commentator puts it like this. He says, so this famous passage does not contain marching orders for us. It is no agenda. Rather, this is a description of God's determinations. We're under the authority of these repetitions and have been placed under that authority by the hand and purpose of God. David Gibson, in the book that was mentioned earlier, Living Life Backwards, puts it a different way. He says, We are each writing the story of our lives, but none of us are the main author. So what are the events 
under heaven. New American Standard says a time to give birth, probably more accurately, a time to be born and a time to die. So this is, this is, in a sense, really the totality of life, right? So from, from the cradle to the grave, from, first li- from life's first cry to final breath, right? So everything in between. So God appoints the day of your birth, and God appoints the day of your death. Here is one thing that is absolutely certain, and that is it is impossible for you to be born early or to be born late in God's timetable. The day that you were born was the day that God appointed you to be born. By the way, this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. But even more than that, it is also the day of your death that has been appointed by God. There is no way to die one day early or... Let's just say this. You can go to the gym every day. You can join CrossFit. You can jog 200 miles a week, right? And that's great. Take care of your body. But do not think that somehow you're going to change the purpose and plan of God. Alright? So, time to be born, a time to die... Scripture is is replete, so our times, of course, are in God's hands. But then the next couplet goes like this. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. And so here is sowing and reaping, the hard work of a farmer, really, from beginning to end. But you know what a farmer knows as he goes out and sows and he goes out and reaps? The farmer knows that every uh, element of success in his endeavor is under the providence of Almighty God. It's God who sends the sunshine. It's God who sends the rain. And so there's a time to go out and plant. There's a time to go up, uh, out and uproot what was planted. But the fact is, is that no matter what the hard work is, it's under the providence of God. The next couplet, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. Both of those couplets end up going together. You could say, uh, obviously, in a time of war, it's the time to kill. Maybe in a case of capital punishment, it's the time to kill. Maybe in 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 a case of self-defense, it's the time to kill. But there's also a time to heal. There's a time to, to seek to repair the ruins. And so you have these two couplets that work together. One is destructive, not necessarily evil, and the other is constructive. Then you have a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And you can see how those two go together. What's being described in these two couplets would be the... um, we could say the, the emotional vicissitudes of life, the way that, that life ebbs and flows in terms of the emotions. So our lives are, are not a TV sitcom that has a prompt that says, laugh or cry. The fact is, is that you don't schedule times to cry. You don't say, okay, let's see, I have a doctor's appointment at 2 and then uh, a hair appointment at 4. Maybe I'll get a good cry in at 3, right? You don't do that. You You also don't go, hey, you know what? Wouldn't it be great if we just all sat around and laughed? So we went over and had a lovely morning with a number of people from the congregation and we laughed and laughed and laughed, right? Nobody said, hey, come over to our house and laugh. (laughs) Laughing and mourning are things that happen to you, right? Those are things outside, those are just things that happen and you respond. The next one is a little delicate, probably. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. Now, stones here actually is intentionally vague because in the ancient world, stones could be weapons, they could be building materials, but I'm going to tell you how the rabbis took this phrase. 
the, rabbi took, the rabbis took the first line to refer to marital intimacy, either in terms of engaging or abstaining. In a sense, the second couplet, the second line, seems to affirm that. A time to embrace, a time to shun embracing. There are times when an embrace is appropriate, there are times where it's inappropriate, and those are just another part of the vicissitudes of life. The next set of couplets, a time to search and a time to give up is lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away. So the next two couplets actually are succinctly summed up by Dwayne Garrett who says, nothing in this world is ours forever. Things get lost. Things get accumulated. Things get thrown away. Things get hoarded. Right? It's the way life is. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. These two couplets also go well together. Right? So, um, tear apart. What often would happen in the Old Testament when there was somebody who was in mourning? They would tear their garments. They would rend their garments, right? And so that could be a picture of mourning. Sewing together could actually be a reference to repairing the garment of grief. Okay? And so there is also a time to be silent and a time to speak. Those are probably connected as well. Um, stop and think about who tore his garments, sat on an ash heap, and had three friends that came and visited him. Okay? Job. Those first seven days, do you know what those three friends said? Nothing. Right? Then they decided to speak. And I want to say they should have stayed silent. Now, we wouldn't have the book of Job if they'd have stayed silent, all right? But understand this, they were more effective in their silence than in their words, right? So, so Solomon is saying here that there is a time to be silent. There's a time, there's a time when actually being silent is a matter of wisdom. Proverbs 10.19, he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 11.12, a man of understanding keeps silent. Proverbs 17.28, even... So for those of you who aren't wise, listen to this one. Even when a fool keeps silent, he's considered wise. The last two. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What's in view in these last two really are are human relationships that you could say would be both in a sense personal and national. Those times where, where we are stirred to love, those times where we are moved to hate. And the, again, these are conditioned upon the relationships of life that oftentimes we have absolutely no control over. So... One to eight, you have these series of couplets, and really you could debate the meaning of the couplets indefinitely because it's poetic language. And one thing about poetic language is that poetic language is not by definition precise. And so these are all plausible uh, ideas. But here's the point of the whole poem. That is, all of the events that take place under the sun are appointed. Every birth, every death, every word, every event in between is an appointed event. Whether we consider it to be constructive or destructive, whether we consider it to be good or evil, happy or sad, it comes from the hand of God. And on top of that, it fits into His plan. 
And so Kohelet is going to remind us of these things and now he's going to press home another question. But before we get to that question, I want you to understand that when the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, it entails all things, great and small. It doesn't just deal with with nations. Oh, it deals with nations. But it also deals with the very details of your life. So, in 2016, I got diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it was, um, it was pretty rough going. But there was one thing that neither Ariel or I ever doubted for a minute, and that is that God was sovereign over every single solitary cell that was growing in my brain. There wasn't a cell that somehow escaped His notice. It was all according to the sovereign purpose of God. And so, there is this innate sense that we have that things happen for a reason. There is this innate sense that we have that, that says that this fits in to a bigger plan somehow. Now here's the nagging question, verse 9. What profit, what advantage is there to the worker from that in which he toils? Now, what's interesting about this is that Solomon gives us his beautiful poem and then he repeats that that programmatic question, if you will, from chapter 1 and verse 3. And I think that it's put here for a very good reason. In light of God's comprehensive sovereignty, he now returns to the advantage question. So maybe the idea is something like this. Perhaps... Once I come to this knowledge of God's sovereign purpose, perhaps somehow that will give me some benefit, some advantage to the toil with which I toil. In other words, maybe if I get just a little bit of insight into what God is doing in His sovereign plan, maybe then I'll see the the purpose behind digging a hole one day and filling it up the next. Well, Solomon tells us that God's given man a task. Notice verse 10. I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. So what what is the task? So, Kohelet has has observed and he tells us that there is a business or there is a task that God has given to the children of men in order to keep them busy in this life. But what is the task? Verse 10, in light of the previous nine verses, we could say, as Walt Kaiser sums it up, God has implanted in the hearts of men a desire to know His plan and to see how the details fit together. This quest is a deep-seated desire, compulsive drive, because people are made in the image of God and are made to appreciate the beauty of creation on an aesthetic level and to know the character, composition, and meaning of the world on an academic and philosophical level and to discern its purpose and destiny on a theological level. In other words, the task that God has given to man is this innate desire to understand the world in which we live and to understand understand God's plan and purpose. <laughs> Haven't you just stopped at times in life and just said, I wonder what God is doing. Have, have you ever asked that? Have you ever asked in the midst of of pain or disappointment or confusion? 
Have you ever just stopped and said, what in the world is God doing? Solomon says, God has put that business into your hearts to want to know. God has put that task on your mind to want to know. And if you, if on the one hand you just say, I believe God's absolutely sovereign over everything and I believe that He has a plan, but I'm not really interested in what He's doing, then you're missing something, right? And so, Solomon now is going to, to then tell us some things that we know in the business that God has given to us. And here's what we know. First of all, this. He has made everything beautiful in His time. Hmm. Christian Standard Bible, NASA, appropriate. He's made everything appropriate. New Jerusalem Bible, He's made everything apt. Both are adequate, but beautiful is actually better. King James, NIV, beautiful. New English translation actually gets both ideas here. He's made everything to fit beautifully in its appropriate time. So here's, here's one of the things that we know. That the God who's sovereign over every detail of my life is actually making everything beautiful in His time. That is, the God of heaven is a cosmic artist and He is actually painting a masterpiece that is absolutely beautiful. It is stunning. And when it is done, everybody will stand there and fall on their faces in praise and wonder before the God who's painted this this portrait, okay? He's making everything beautiful in its time. Now just keep this in mind. This is one of the things that we know. He's putting together the tapestry and He's putting it together so that we know that the times and the events of our lives happen for a reason and not just a random one, but actually a beautiful one. A part of God's beautiful plan. And so God as that cosmic artist has given us this innate sense of reason and purpose in the events of life. There's something else you know. He has set eternity in their hearts. Not only has God created you with the innate knowledge that He's sovereign over the details of life, but that He's also making all things beautiful in His time. But He's also created each one of us with an inherent sense of eternity. Because we ourselves have been created by the Eternal One. And so, there is this, there is this magnificent sense where, where, in a sense, from a, from a theoretical perspective, I look at my life and I know God is making everything beautiful in His time and there is an eternal purpose. He has set that eternity in my heart. I realize that He is the Eternal One. I realize that I will in fact live forever and somehow my life is a piece of what He is doing in that grand masterpiece. But here's the big letdown. You know those things, but God has not given us the capacity to figure it out. He has not given us the capacity to see the reasons. You, you, you do understand that there is, a, there is a huge difference between knowing there is a reason and knowing what is the reason. Right? Huge difference. And so, this picture that, that Solomon is painting for us, he says, look, God has this massive canvas and you want to be able to see what He's painting because you realize that you have this innate sense in your own heart and here's, here's the fundamental truth and that is God has not given you the capacity to fulfill the business He's called you to do. So well, that's mean. 
David Gibson says, if we could see the end from the beginning and understand how a billion lives and a thousand generations and unspeakable sorrows and untold joys are all woven into a tapestry of perfect beauty, then we would be God. Solomon now is going to move to this next paragraph, 12 to 15. And he's going to, in a sense, rescue us from the letdown of our own inabilities. All right? So, Kohelet's going to make these observations, he draws these conclusions, he asks questions. And then he turns around and at times feels like he just punches you in the solar plexus. Okay. Verse 12. I know. <laughs> I know there is nothing better. Now, before we get into what he actually knows is nothing better, you have to understand the way that he sets this up, right? So, God has a purpose. God is sovereign over the details. He's denied us the insight. The burden of verse 10 is the burden that we occupy ourselves with. And so, here's, here's what we need to say as Reformed people or people who believe in the sovereignty of God. And it is simply this. A solid conviction that God is sovereign does not, in fact, give you any special insight into God's plan. To know that God is sovereign and has a plan doesn't mean that you know what He's doing in His sovereignty and in His plan. And so, as Solomon has driven that home, and of course, you know, one of the things for us as human beings is we do not like to, we don't like to feel our own weakness. We don't like to sense our own limitations. We want to be able to, we want to be able to know. We want to be able to understand. We want to be able to figure it out. Because, I mean, after all, not only are we human beings, we're Americans for goodness sakes. And so here's what Solomon tells us. Here's what he knows. Here's his counsel. There's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. So, you know God is sovereign. You know God has a purpose. You know God's making all things beautiful in His time. He's put eternity in your heart. And you want to actually get a picture of what He's doing. You want to get some insight. God hasn't granted it to you. And here's what Solomon says. So in light of that, you know what you need to do? Just rejoice. Just rejoice. Be glad that you know God. Be glad that you know that God is in fact sovereign. Be thankful for the life that He's given to you. Be thankful that you know that there's nothing in your life that is in vain. And then devote yourself to doing God's good. Living a life of faithful obedience. We had a guy in our church that for many years, he was a deacon and he was a captain in the Marine Corps and he'd been deployed more times than, than, than I can remember. And um, I don't know. Do you have a Marine base around here? You have an Army base, right? But, okay, so Marines are different. Any of you who are Marines, because once a Marine, always a Marine, okay, you'll, you'll resonate with this. There would be Mark sitting there in an elders and deacons meeting, and he would start talking. And none of us knew what he was talking about. He was using marine jargon and we were like, speak English, this is church, alright? And he would come back and he would say this over and over and over again. You know, Pastor, we're on a need-to-know basis. We're on a need-to-know basis. 
what I need to know as a captain is more than what the sergeant needs to know. What the sergeant needs to know is more than what the corporal needs to know. And what the general needs to know is on a much higher plane than what I need to know. You and I come into this world and we're on a need-to-know basis. And so, there's no fatalism here. Oh, well, you know what? God's sovereign. There's nothing that you can do. And so just eat, drink, and be merry. It's not that kind of fatalism at all. It is simply this. God is sovereign over this vaporous life that you have. And so rejoice and eat and drink and see good in your labor. What is He doing? He's echoing back to that first corner piece of chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Life is a gift. And so here's here's the remedy. Abandon all hope of comprehension. And as you abandon all hope of comprehension, just rejoice and do good. One of these days, you, you you will know more than you know now. Right? Let's hope so. You don't want to be dumber in heaven than you are now. Okay? Um, and so you're going to, you're going to see things. So now we see through a glass darkly, right? Then face to face. But here's one of the things that will be an eternal reality for us is that even though we enter into eternity and we will know in a way that we've never known before, the fact is, is that God will always remain infinite and we will always remain finite. And there is a sense in which what we know about God will grow exponentially. And so God is knowable now. He will be even more knowable in the eternal state. But even though He is knowable, that does not mean that He's comprehensible. And that's true not only now, but that'll be true in the age to come. And so here's, here's, I mean, it sounds kind of crass, but just abandon all hope of comprehension in this life and even to a large degree in the life to come. One commentator, he says, the answer to an unhealthy preoccupation with finding the answers and reasons for all of one's troubles is to enjoy what you have to enjoy, including your toil, without trying to figure out some ultimate leverage or advantage from it. So verses 14 and 15. What do we know about our sovereign God? I know everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. For God has worked that men should fear Him. What do we know? That, what do we know about God? Everything that God does is forever. There's nothing about God that's havel. There's nothing in God's work that's havel. What God does is perfect. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And then God has worked in our hearts so that we would fear Him. And so the the frustration, in a sense, that is. Can we say it this way? Deliberately imposed upon us by God is so that we as human beings will always be able to recognize that there is a massive chasm between creator-creature. One thing that will be true now and forever is that you will always be a created being. Another thing that is absolutely certain is that you will never be the Creator. And so, God's work is perfect. God's work is eternal. I can have that as a conviction. And He's worked in my heart in such a way that I fear Him. That is, I bow before Him. I recognize who He is as sovereign God and also loving Father. And then we get to verse 15. And verse 15 is, is, is somewhat elusive. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Now let me just say that this verse is actually going to set up verses 16 to 22, which we'll look at in the next session. So what does he mean when he says, that which has been already 
that which is has been already and that which will be has already been. And then God seeks for what is past. It's that last phrase, by the way. So the events that he's, that he's alluding to here are, in all likelihood, probably the bad things in life. But even the sovereign Lord is in control of the bad things. There's a sense in which the way things have been is the way things always will be. That's going to count for injustice and oppression as well. But that little phrase in verse 15, for God seeks what has passed by, I think there's a better way to translate that, and that is, let me give you the idea, and that is that God remembers and seeks out those who believe they're forgotten. The, the, the passage can be translated in a number of different ways, but it is the events of human history that, in a sense, time has chased away into the past, and those things seem to be lost and gone forever, but not to God. By the way, this should be a huge comfort if you have suffered at the hands of somebody else in life. This should be a huge comfort if you know what it is to actually suffer because of somebody else's cruelty, somebody else's oppression, somebody else's injustice, and it seems to have been just swept under the rug and forgotten. And here's the reality that there is going to be a time where God will, as it were, reach back into the past and bring forth that which has been left behind and bring it to account into the present. So God calls us to trust Him. God calls us to fear Him as our sovereign Lord who's in control of every area of life. And as I, as I ache to know the purpose and the reason for the events, God has told me in His Word, I know that you want to know I made you that way, but I'm not going to let you. So instead of of trying to be great engineers who are deciphering the details of a sovereign plan, what does he say? Give up trying to decipher. Give up trying to calculate. Give up trying to figure out. And enjoy this short life. Live for Him. Trust Him. Keep the right perspective on life. And He's not going to forget. One of these days, He will in fact make everything right. And so God indeed is making all things beautiful in His time. And you say, well, you know, there's been a lot of ugly things that have happened in my life. And there have been people who have done ugly things to me in my life. How can I be sure that God is in fact making everything beautiful in His time? What confidence can I possibly have that that's what God is really doing? And I want to tell you that you can be sure that God is making all things beautiful in His time because in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And you can be assured that God's making all things beautiful in His time because at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And when God called each of us to Himself, 2 Corinthians 6.2, He called us at the acceptable time. And so there is a sense in which God has a timetable and He's making these things beautiful and He's doing it in His time and you can be assured that He's doing that because He sent His Son at the right time, His Son died at the right time, He saved you at the right time, and in fact today is the day of salvation. And so he may, He's making all things beautiful in His time. So if you're suffering, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you, you know what the phrase is? At the proper time. And so, brothers and sisters, He is in fact making all things beautiful in His time and giving us His Son and bringing us to salvation in His time. 
is a guarantee that the cosmic artist knows exactly what colors to use, what strokes to make. And so trust him. You do know that you've not, you're not called to figure stuff out. You're called to trust him. Because he's taken your life and he's written you into his story. And so you trust him even when you don't understand. Now, Ariel says this never happened, but I remember it. <laughs> We're living in Portland. Our daughter Ashley was about four years old. And I ended up having to take her to get her her shots. Okay. Now, I know you think I dreamed this, but I didn't. Okay. <laughs> of course, kids don't like shots. Okay. And as the nurse comes in, she grabs my arm and she says, Daddy, is this going to hurt? And I said, Yes. Really bad. <laughs> I said, Yes. She grabbed me and she says, Why do I have to get these shots? And I said to her, well, you know, honey, there was this guy, Jonah Salk, and there's this, um, you know, there have been these medical advancements and, you know, you create these antibodies and you have to inject them into your body and they build up. Well, she's four years old, right? Is it going to help for me to explain it to her? She's not going to understand. Any more than you or I would if God works to explain things to us. Okay? Because we're lo- as far as God is concerned, we're lower than the four-year-old. Okay? So you know what I did? I just held her, and she held me. That's what you're called to do in a life where painful, ugly things happen. You trust your Heavenly Father because you know He knows what He's doing You don't, but you know He's good, and He does good. Let's pray. Our Father, how we marvel at Your comprehensive sovereignty over the details of our life. And so, Father, we would plead with You this afternoon for those who are really going through the the ringer and through difficult times right now. And Father, at times they've cried their eyes out asking why. And we pray, Father, that You would comfort Your children by reminding us that You really are making everything beautiful in Your time. And that we can trust You because You love us And you've proven that love to us by giving us your Son. And so if you did not spare your own Son, but you freely gave Him up for us all, how will you not also with Him freely give us all things? Receive our thanks and transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.